City podcast is part of the Electronic Voice Phenomenon Strand for Liverpool Biennial 2012. It is produced by Mercy in partnership with Liverpool Biennial. For more information and to sign up for updates, visit biennial.com or mercyonline.co.uk forward slash podcasts. This week's podcast takes its inspiration from FACT's Biennial 2012 programme, particularly the Random Acts event which is happening as I speak at FACT. Random Acts is a three-minute slice of television broadcast every night, somewhere between 10pm and 1am on Channel 4. It contains content that's generated by artists. FACT have engaged with the channel to choose the artist commissioned to make the work and are helping to promote a new wave of interest in the relationship between art and television. I've enlisted the help of a number of very wise individuals to help me explore historical and contemporary relationships between art and television. I'll be speaking to academic and writer Colin Perry, fact curator Omar Khalif, and young artist collective Lucky PDF. If you're interested in tweeting us, you can find me on at Vanessa Bartlett, that's B-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. And you might also like to know that today's parasitic story is written by Stephen Dodd. This bit here, this sterling here, yep. this is art brought wood against wall. If you're someone who's interested in art, but you also like to watch a bit of television occasionally, there's a good chance that you might have either felt highly amused or possibly slightly offended at some of the populist representations of artists that are often seen on television. This is arty, poverized jars, darling. <laughs> this clip from Absolutely Fabulous is borrowed from a video produced by Sally O'Reilly and Colin Perry, which collected representations of artists in various British and American programmes. It found a wealth of common stereotypes of the promiscuous, pretentious and completely offbeat artist. Now, over here, we've got... This is, uh, darling, darling, this is the materialisation of the psychotic's dream deciphered by a clairvoyant hangers. It's hangers. It's hangers. <laughs> when viewed without any degree of subtlety, art and television make for strange bedfellows. The former appears to create spaces for contemplation and philosophical discourse, while the latter is most commonly associated with populist programming, such as soap opera and reality TV. <laughs> this is a sort of, this is a, a corpse and a open oaken oblong coffin, silking. It's a dead body, Pat. <laughs> yeah, but is it art, Eddie? <laughs> In fact, an historical perspective on the changing relationship between art and television reveals complex narratives about technological innovation, political art, and the economic constraints that determine what we actually get to view on TV. To get a better grasp of this particular art history, let's start in the era of shoulder pads and lycra.
So I suppose I should admit that I'm playing the theme tune to Dallas. Dallas is one of the most well-known programs in the history of American popular television, and it was broadcast throughout the 1980s. For many people, the show exemplified the superficiality of popular culture and broadcast media, but America in the 1980s had still not forgotten the legacy of the Vietnam War, and a generation of artists was emerging who wanted to critique the dominant discourses of popular culture. Judith Barry, who's one of the artists participating in FACT's Random Acts Conference today, was part of this generation of young American artists. What happened between 1975 or even 1977 and 1981 was a kind of giant sea change in the relationship between art and popular culture. And in the U.S. what happened was that suddenly a younger generation, of which I was one, was much more interested in questioning popular culture and radically seeing if they could take some of the ideas that were coming out of semiotics and feminist-based psychoanalysis, sort of second-wave feminism, and seeing if they could use some of those ideas to actually produce a rupture. While it's perhaps not surprising that lots of artists were invested in political engagement with media, it maybe is unexpected that one of the primary sites for artist engagement in the 1980s was with the music television giant MTV in the days before it was bought out by Time Warner. Judith Barry reflects on her experiences at the channel. MTV had no commercials, but it became clear after a little while of playing one music video after another after another that if you didn't distinguish among them, they would all run together. So even though there were no commercials at the very beginning, they did need to produce bumpers and wraparounds. And that's where artists first started to come into that. As a fledgling TV channel, MTV was able to offer a liminal space for young artists to experiment with short pieces of television. Meanwhile, over in the UK, Channel 4 was also fulfilling a similar role for British artists. I chatted to art critic and writer Colin Perry in an admittedly very noisy British library about that particular historical moment when artists were given space to produce work for TV. It happened in the UK in the early 80s really from the launch of Channel 4 whose remit was to innovate in both form and content. So you've got experimental programming that was also heavily criticised. Similar to the situation in America, art was thought to stand in opposition to the dominant mass media culture. The fundamental idea of it is that they are artists to be opposed to television and television is something that is artists should be opposed to. Although it started out with a utopian intention to create space for art, Channel 4 ultimately hasn't always been able to adhere to this remit. That's perhaps one of the reasons why the recent development of the Random Acts programming strand is such an exciting innovation for anyone who's interested in viewing art on TV. In a moment, we'll hear from FACT curator Omar Khalif and young art collective Lucky PDF about modern discourses around art and television. But first, here's another of Andrew Ellis's musical suggestions in response to the biennial theme of hospitality. This is The Chromatics playing The Guest.
In Killing Hall, after their parents died, the children left to find jobs in Leeds and the retirees moved in, pleased at the bargain they had found. They loved the solitude, the beauty of the countryside, the bird song, the stone well with its pretty tiled roof. Only the graffiti the young people had left behind bothered them, but then they didn't understand the strange scribbles and squiggles daubed on the stone of the well and it soon came off with a little turpentine and elbow grease. They didn't give it a second thought. Not when there were so many other more positive pastimes just a short bus ride away. Picnics in Valley Gardens when the sun shone. Excursions to the Howard House when it rained. She started to paint watercolours of the wild flowers in the pastures. He loved to watch the harriers as they hunted in the fields. They wondered why anyone would ever want to leave this place, and for such a cheap price. In June it rained and rained. They could not remember a summer like it. 
The rivers rose, and the little stream at the bottom of the garden burst its banks. In pagan times, people had sacrificed when they felt the gods were angered. The young people with their black clothes and strange piercings had grown desperate for work. In the three horseshoes, they were still whispering about them, witchcraft and pagan nonsense. On Sunday, when they were getting ready to catch the 36 of the medieval fair, he saw a fox pull something raw and bloated across the lawn. That's when they found the corpses in the well. This is the theme tune to one of Channel 4's landmark pieces of broadcast from the past 12 years. The reality TV show format of Big Brother very much reflects the populist agenda of contemporary TV. In this kind of environment, what can an initiative like Random Acts offer to artists broadcasting their work? I asked fact curator Omar Khalif, who worked on some of the Random Acts programming, to give us his opinion. Because it is something that happens in between conventional programming, it doesn't fit within the traditional um, the traditional structure of something that has adverts and has a beginning, middle and end and is a bookended in this particular way or is even driven by commercial interest in a sense. So I think that's an amazing opportunity also because it, because there are so many of them being broadcast, what I think is wonderful about it is that they're encouraging a lot more emerging artistic talent to experiment with broadcast. My only caution or like frustration is that Channel 4 in the early early 90s, you know, um, even the late 80s, was actually pioneering artists artists in television and actually most most notably probably, probably with Derek Jarman. And what was great about that was that they were championing and supporting long-form work. And that's that wasn't necessarily like the Steve McQueen-style narrative work. It was actually properly long-form experimental work being broadcast in that environment. And I think that that's really something that I hope we can also get a handle of. And I don't know if that's going to be possible because of the way the advertising structure is currently working. And also because of digital realm and because of the choice and the amount of the digital channels, it's almost like those broadcasters are fighting so much to keep their core audience that I think that there is... I worry that if, if there, there, there will ever be the opportunity for artists to work in that way again. The thing about television is a very very particular temporality and a very particular way of being experienced and what's exciting is that artists can perhaps rethink or re-articulate that because the way that contemporary art is produced, especially contemporary video, film and video, is that it isn't constructed out of a conventional linearity and that in a sense can mess up or create a kind of dysfunction within that system. In the past two years, there has definitely been a revival of interest in the relationship between art and television. Earlier this year, the ICA held a major exhibition on the topic called Remote Control, and artist collectives such as Auto Italia and Lucky PDF have launched their own television-style broadcasts online. It is these groups who potentially seem to be at the cutting edge of where the developing relationship between art and broadcast technology might go over the next five years. I met John Hill and James Early from Lucky PDF to ask their opinion on the genesis of this resurgent interest in the relationship between art and TV. I was pretty amused to find out that their generation of artists seems to be nostalgic for a lot of the things that previous generations had disliked about TV. One of the reasons for the resurgent interest in television, I think, is a feeling that mainstream television has now become so much like the internet that it's lost a lot of 
what was really appealing about it, which is a kind of a slowness and a kind of directness and a kind of that it was a one-way process. It's not a, a conversation, and I think a lot of the artists we were working with to produce our TV shows really responded to this idea that there could be, there could still be some sort of almost like more formal presentation style. So why are young artists so interested in engaging with technology that became obsolete in the 1980s? I think a lot of that is to do with the, the practicalities of the economics of the situation where you now can pick up what was professional level video equipment on eBay for 30 quid. But I think there's a, a real interest in a, in a, in a hands-on a less, some ways less mediated, but less kind of screen-based interaction with, with video and things where people can, you know, give themselves electric shocks still are really appealing. It seems as if fashion and economics have dictated a circular movement where artists who make internet broadcasts with very new technologies are engaged in a discourse with older mediums. Although we've barely scratched the surface of some of the issues in this podcast, it seems like the art historical narrative between art and TV will continue to develop in very interesting ways. Before we wrap up for this week, let's visit Oliver Braid for one of his regular reports from Liverpool Biennial. This week he's making an immediate suggestion of an alternative way to enjoy an artwork in response to Jacob Colding's work at Biennial Venue number 26, the James Munro Pub. Oliver Braid's immediate suggestion I don't think we need to do the breakfast thing, I'm okay, quite cool. happy. Okay, cool, yeah, do you think the sound level sounds alright? Okay, I guess what well, I'm just talking, blah blah blah. So, <laughs> hello, my name's Oliver Braid and I'm an artist living in Glasgow and this is my immediate suggestion for uh, the work that is at the James Munro, oh, by an artist whose name I can't remember to think I should just quickly get it. <laughs> Jacob Holding, I think? Colding. Colding, okay, lovely. Okay. Shimmy around this side. <laughs> okay, cool. Hello, my name's Oliver Braid, and I'm an artist living in Glasgow, and this is my immediate suggestion for James Colding's contribution to the Liverpool Biennial uh, at the James Munro pub, which is on Tithe Barn Street. Now, when we approach the James Munro, uh, we can see it's actually a really beautiful pub. But I, if you're a shy person like me, you'll often be quite nervous about going into a pub. You can tell usually by the windows of a pub whether it is going to be the kind of pub that you want to go in or not. In Glasgow, where I live, there's quite a lot of pubs where the windows are completely blocked up and there's just sort of a metal grill across. If you see a pub like that, you probably know that, well, I'm a little bit too gentle to go into that kind of pub. Uh, but what I would suggest, rather than blocking up a window entirely, which instantly puts people off, uh, James Colding's artwork, uh, Jacob, whoa, Jacob Colding's artwork is perfect for shy people because we can pretend that we're looking at an artwork where actually we can check out the pub and see if it's somewhere that's going to be suitably unfrightening for us. Whereas, at the, like, and at the same time, we can't be, um, 
accused of being scaredy cats because we could just look like we were on a quick art tour. The final thing that I would say is beautiful. I would leave this one right to the end of a busy biennial day and uh, what we do after we've seen a lot of artworks and we'll be tired from walking around is we can just congratulate ourselves on all of our new knowledge by drinking a pint with our friends in the pub and using that as a time to reflect on what we've seen and have a debate with our friends where, because I would always say that really the best thing about any type of artwork is whether it generates a conversation between people that we care about the most. So, uh, thanks! Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.